If you would turn back in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. Whoever just said that guessed it right. Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we've read it, but let me uh, read for us again verse 3 through to the end of verse number 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Let's take the time to read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Over the years, I have had the opportunity to conduct a number of funeral and graveside services. I especially appreciate that portion in a service where you get to hear the eulogy. You get to hear about that individual's life, a testimonial of that uh, individual, the work that they've accomplished and the life that they have lived. But to this day, I have never heard a eulogy given for someone who is still alive. But today, you will. This morning, I'm going to give you God's eulogy. Now, someone might say, is God dead? Absolutely not. The English word eulogy comes from a Greek word, eulogetos, and it literally means to speak well of, it means to bless, it means to offer thanks and adoration, to praise or to invoke a benediction upon. You may be surprised to learn that in our Greek New Testament, not the English one we hold in our hands, but in the Greek New Testament, the word for eulogy appears eight times. And it is always in reference to the Lord. You see, the English word eulogy has morphed over the years. And it has morphed now to such a point that it refers to that final tribute that is paid to one who has died. But that's not really what it means, the word. My goal this morning and in our afternoon service, which I hope you'll be able to stay for if you're able, because uh, this is part one of two. I want to take you on a journey through the throne room of God's glorious grace. I want to point out the manifold blessings of God which He has lavishly 
and plentifully poured out upon his people, a people such as us that are so undeserving. This message, my prayer, is that this message would invoke thanksgiving, that this message would invoke praise and adoration to our God who alone is worthy. I want to say to you this morning that this message will be one of the greatest messages you ever hear. Now, before you say, wow, that's very proud, I'm not talking about the messenger. I'm talking about the message. The message that you hear today is an incredible message. It is a message that is blowing my mind as I stand up here and have the privilege of sharing it. I'm not sure how I'm going to get through it. It is such an incredible passage of Scripture. And so I want to preach a message strangely entitled God's Eulogy. God's eulogy. Heavenly Father, as we commence in this study of your word and we look at this tremendous portion of scripture, our Lord, not one of us in this room, no matter how educated, no matter how long we have walked with the Lord, could ever fathom the depths of what is before us. But Lord, we pray that today, uh, that if we come as perhaps a new Christian with just a thimble, that you would fill it. Lord, for those of us who've been saved for a little bit longer and perhaps have a bucket, may you fill that. And Lord, those who have been saved for many years and experienced many things and come with a well, may you fill that from this text, we pray. That Lord, every person in this room would take from this something that you have hand-picked for them. Our Lord, change us, we pray. Help us to see you in your glory. Our Lord, strip us of ourselves and the idols of our hearts that we would see our God that we would view him for who he is. Uh, And that is only possible as your spirit would open our eyes to these truths. And so we commit ourselves and this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this is going to be a two-part message exactly where we stop this morning and start in this afternoon. I'm not sure. Um, We're just going to see how we go with time here. The first point that I want you to see from verse number three is blessed be God. If you're taking notes, blessed be God. I think it is fascinating that verses 3 through to verse 14, just have a quick look at that in your Bible. Just notice the length of that. That forms one sentence in the Greek. Now, my English teacher would not be very happy with Paul because I was told a long time ago, you need periods in there, you need full stops. Here is, from verse 3 to 14, one sentence. In fact, it is the longest sentence in the Bible. And may I say to you, it is the grandest sentence in the Bible, in my opinion. This superb sentence covers the past. It covers the present. It covers the future of God's design for the church, which he set in motion, get this, before the world was formed. This was God's plan. That blows my mind. You just take a moment to think about eternity and your head will nearly explode. We can't even think about that. We are bound in time, linear time we are bound by as individuals and yet God is eternal and before we existed in eternity past, which in itself is a contradiction, eternity past, this was in the mind of God. And I love that this grand sentence by the Apostle Paul begins, commences with worship and adoration for our God. Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So I need to give you a few uh, definitions here to help us, uh, to, to give us the, the undergirding of the truth here. This word blessed, it's the word I referred to before, where we get the word eulogy from, the English word eulogy. And it means to praise, it means to thank, it means to adore, it means to speak well of, it means to worship. In essence, what Paul is doing here at the beginning of this very first aspect of the sentence is he is offering a tribute, a doxology to God the Father, who is the instigator of the plan of salvation. In fact, it might be helpful for you at this moment. It's not part of what I have in front of me. But as you read through this text today, it might be helpful to know the theological truth behind it, that how the scripture works is it's from the Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. That's how the theology works when we talk about salvation, from the Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. That is crucial to your understanding of this passage of scripture. May I say to us this morning as an early application There is nothing more essential in the life of a Christian than to praise the Lord. Nothing. There is nothing of greater importance in life than to worship the Lord. Than to have Him as our primary focus. And Paul's first initial comment here in this incredible sentence is, Blessed be God. Blessed be God. Be God. See, we're not simply to ascribe worth to the Lord when things are going our way. We're not simply to say, well, you know what, everything's going humanly the way I want it to, so therefore I'm going to praise the Lord. That's not what this is talking about. It's all times. It is that God is good all the time and worthy of our praise at all times. There is never a time in your life where God is not up to good things in your life. Though you may look at the external circumstances and and wonder, what is happening here? Is God really on the throne? Is God really working in my life? Does everything really work together for good? It doesn't seem like it. And yet we can be assured of this reality. Like the Apostle Paul said, though my outer man is wasting away, though everything around me is not looking right, my inner man is being renewed. God is doing a transformational work within me. And God is always good. Let me say this to us. The Christian should only cease in praise and worship of the Lord when he ceases to be worthy. To put that in the other way, he is always worthy. Therefore, we will never cease to worship and praise the Lord. Let me just help us by way of understanding this matter of blessing the Lord. To bless the Lord is not simply to talk about him. Lots of people talk about God. That's not blessing the Lord. It's not even to talk about his character alone. To bless God is to have him as my supreme pleasure and the single greatest desire of my life. That's what blesses God. When God is absolutely everything to me, that is how he is blessed. That is how he's adored. That is how he is worshipped. See, the problem we have today in Christianity is that so often he is simply an accessory. He's an ornament. He's an addition to our life. And we get it all wrong. He's not an addition. He's not an ornament. He's not an accessory. He is our life. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, for when we see Christ who is our life, not part of our life, 
the very essence, the very focus, the very object of our life. Notice what the psalmist writes about the Lord in Psalm 95. Let me read it to you. He says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. I love what the hymn writer says. Robert Grant writes, O worship the king, O glorious above. O gratefully sing his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. O tell of his might, O sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space. His chariots of wrath, the deep thunderclouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. Your bountiful care, what tongue can recite? It breathes in the air, it shines in the light. It streams from the hills, it descends to the plain, and sweetly distills in the dew and the rain. Then he looks at us and says, frail children of dust, and feeble as frail. In you, God, do we trust, nor find you to fail. Your mercy is how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. O measureless might, unchangeable love, whom angels delight to worship above. Your ransomed creation with glory ablaze, in true adoration shall sing to your praise. Church, this is our God. This is the one who we are called with the Apostle Paul to say, blessed be God. I want to ask you this morning, is your heart filled with praise and adoration for this God? Do you yearn to speak of his glorious character? Is your heart so moved by his kindness to you? Perhaps you know little or nothing of this great God. Well, the good news is if you stay tuned for a few moments, you're going to witness the greatness and the glory of his grace as we look through this passage. The blessed God. Blessed be God. The second thing I want you to note, second point, is not simply blessed be God, but now we look at The God who blesses. Blessed be God, first of all. It begins with him. But now, secondly, let's look at the God who blesses. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, let me read it for you again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the next phrase. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. He is not simply one who we bless, but he is also the blesser. 
It's interesting to note, I think, that if you want to get your theology right, you need to understand this truth. It is the very nature of God to bestow goodness and kindness upon unworthy recipients. It is the very nature of God. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us, Paul says in Romans. It is the nature of God to give even to those who are unworthy, especially to those who are unworthy, to the enemies of his love. Notice what the text says here. It says, who has blessed us? Now, we want to be very careful here. This is a slightly different Greek word. This word blessed here, as opposed to the first blessed be our God. This is slightly different. Because if it, were not the, if it were the same, then God would adore and praise us. Because that's what we're called to do at the start of the verse, if you follow what I mean. This is a slightly different word. And this does not refer to the fact that God now has adoration and praise for us. Not at all. This refers to his bestowal of favor, love, grace and mercy upon us. We're to praise and worship the Lord, but he does not praise and worship us. What he does is bestow upon us his grace and his favor and his mercy and his love and all those incredible communicable attributes that he gives to us. God has showered his people with kindness, which is unfathomable. Let me say to us this morning, no matter how well by the power of the spirit of God that I may preach this morning, none of us are going to get this fully. This is beyond what our minds can comprehend about our God. In fact, James writes, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James chapter 1 and verse 17. Now we need to pause for a moment here in case we suddenly get the wrong idea and we uh, we have preachers today in pulpits who lie to us. Here's what some people say. They tell us that God's blessings are physical blessings. For example, in Christ, if you are a good and faithful Christian, it's guaranteed that you will be wealthy. That's what some preachers would have us believe from behind pulpits in this very land and in lands abroad. They tell us that if you come to Christ, all your problems physically will be gone. That is not true. God never promised that life will be easy. In fact, he said, if you are a good soldier, you will experience hardship. If you are a Christian who loves me, you will have hardship because that's the development of your character in him. He's refining us. So that's not what he's saying here. When he says, uh, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, this is not physical. He is speaking of spiritual blessings. And we must understand this. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't bless us physically. He certainly does. We have all experienced the blessing of God's hand physically, but that's not what the promise here is. What it is, what we're told here is that God's blessings are spiritual. The blessings received from God in Christ are spiritual and they exist in the heavenly places, the scripture says. Now, I found that very curious as I was studying this. What does Paul mean by the heavenly places? What what is the apostle here talking? We're blessed with all these spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly places. Now, I was tempted to say, well, I'd like some in the earthly places too. That'd be really handy. But then as I studied out what this means, I was quite astonished. The apostle Paul is not talking here about heaven. 
He's not talking about the fact that all of your blessings that God is pouring out upon you are all up there reserved in heaven and you don't get any of them now. Not at all. What he is talking about is that the blessings that are spiritual are in the spiritual realm. They relate to that which is in God's domain and kingdom. It's interesting when you study the scriptures, if you're a Christian here this morning, you exist on two levels. You are physically a sojourner in the world, the Bible tells us. You're just here for a short time, but you spiritually are a citizen of heaven right now, if you're a Christian. In fact, the Bible tells us in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and there it is that we wait for a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are just passing through. This physical life is temporary. I was sharing with Claudine this morning that this is just an external shell, is it not, this body? And it's failing and it's frail and we're looking forward to a new body. We are citizens of heaven. This is not the end. We have dual citizenship in one sense. We're born on the earth, but we are born again in the spiritual realm and our citizenship is in heaven. And you know what I think is wonderful about that? Though we are bound to this earth for a time, the Christian has all the rights and all the power and all the entitlements of his heavenly citizenship now. Let me just remind you what that means. All the rights, all the power and all the entitlements of your heavenly citizenship are yours presently now. They're not in the future. They are right here and right now. And you say, well, what? How does that work? 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, the Apostle Peter tells us that God has conferred to us all things that relate to the spiritual life and godliness through the Lord Jesus Christ. You have presently everything that is necessary for you to live this spiritual life. You lack nothing in Christ. To say that you lack anything in Christ in this spiritual realm is to have a total misunderstanding of the gospel of Christ. It's very important that we get this because many Christians do not realize that everything that is necessary for our spiritual life is provided in Christ. Some pray for love. Some pray for peace and hope and power and joy. And yet the scripture tells us that all of these are given to us in Christ. They're already ours. I want to give you just a few examples here because this is crucial to your understanding of what is ours. The love of God. We're not going to turn to these, but let me just quickly mention them. You say, I, I want to have the love of God. If you're a Christian, Romans chapter 5 verse 5 says this, God's love has been poured out into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. If you say, I can't love that person, then you are not walking in the Spirit because the love of God has been poured out. It's not just little trink little drips into your heart. It's been poured out in fullness into your heart. And the question is not, how can I love that person? Is am I walking in the love that God has already poured out in my heart? So how can I love like Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit has already provided you with that love. Let's take peace as the second one. The peace of God. John 14, 27, the Lord Jesus said this to his disciples and to us by application. Peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We have been given peace by the Lord Jesus Christ at conversion. Peace is yours. Love is yours. Peace is yours. Let's take for a moment hope. The hope of God. Romans 15, 13, again, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You say, I feel hopeless. You can't be walking in the Spirit then, because He pours hope out as well. Hope is part of our Christian experience, our heavenly citizenship. What about the power of God? So many people say, I really need the power of God in my life. If you are a Christian, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us not the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. You say, I, I want to have power in my spiritual life. You have power in your spiritual life if you have the Holy Spirit because He's the one who brings power. In fact, we read about it first uh, in Ephesians chapter 3. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that's at work in your life. That is an immeasurable power. And that power is there and available for us in the Christian realm if we will walk in the Spirit. Let's take one more, the joy of God. The love of God, the peace of God, the hope of God, the power of God, the joy of God. Some people say, I, I just want to have joy. If you're a Christian, Romans 14, 17 says this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So how can I have joy? How can I live through these physical calamities? How can I live through the difficulties in my life? Things aren't going the way they ought to. Well, you walk in the Spirit and joy is yours. That is the fruit of the Spirit. Remember in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy. Joy is ours. It's part of our heavenly citizenship. It is an affront to the glory of God. An offense to the glory of God and his gospel to say that you are incomplete in Christ. Do we get that? It's an offense. It's an affront to say, God, you have not provided me with all that I need. When he says, I've given you every spiritual blessing that you need to live this Christian life. Colossians 2.10 says, and you are complete in him. Who is the head of all principality and power. And so we see the God who blesses there in verse number three. The God who blesses. The third and final point for the whole day. That's it for the whole day is this next point. And you probably noticed we're only in verse three and we've got to get to verse 14. So this is a big point. But it's broken up between the two services. So we, we note... Blessed be our God. And we know the God who blesses. But now finally what Paul goes into this doxology. Let's look thirdly at the blessings of God. The blessings of God. What is it that God has so lavishly bestowed upon us? And we will uh, just cover a couple of sub points here and then uh, we'll be done. 
verses 4 through 14, the remainder of our text, contain specific blessings which are produced by the individual members of the Trinity. Let me show you what I mean. Verses 4 through 6, the start of verse 6, are a focus on the Father. Verses 6, the second part of of verse 6, through to verse 12, have a focus on the Son. And then verses 13 to 14 have a focus on the Spirit. And so our sub-points for now and for this afternoon are going to be in that fashion. The first thing I want you to see in our text is going to be the Father's election. The Father's election. And we do not have time, and I'm saying this up front, we do not have time today to cover all of these aspects in great detail. I wish I could, but I'd be here for a week at least. So I want to summarize them and draw your attention to some specifics. In verse 4, the Bible says, According as he, that is the Father, hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Long before we came on the scene, God the Father selected you to be saved. This choice of God was not based on some inherent goodness in you. Did you get that? God's selection, God's election was not based on something good He saw in you. It was not based on some great potential He foresaw in your life, but for His sovereign purpose and His pleasure. I want to remind us, because there are those who would teach us in the realm of this matter of election, that it somehow gives us a license to be lazy. Let me say to you that God's election is not a license to be lazy about proclaiming the gospel of God. In fact, it is the starting point. When I realize what God has done in choosing me to be saved and adopting me into the family of God, you know what it does? It enthuses me, it it equips me, it motivates me, and it gives me a greater passion than anything else in the world to know that God has chosen me and I have the privilege of being his ambassador for Christ. So don't for a moment believe that God's sovereign election in some way diminishes your responsibility as an ambassador of the gospel. Nor does it dismiss individual responsibility to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Here's what some people would have us believe. That because of God's sovereign election, first of all, we don't have to do anything by way of preaching the gospel. That is total, totally wrong. We're commanded to. But then the second thing that people would have us say uh, or or have us believe is that, well, you know what? God's going to do it also. We don't have to believe. We have no choice in the matter. We're not supposed to believe. That's not what the Bible says either. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, some would say, well, how are you going to harmonize those two truths? The answer is, I have no idea. I have no idea how those two things work fully, except that the Bible teaches God sovereignly elects and yet We are to believe in, by faith, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. I don't know how that works, but we are commanded to do that. God's sovereign election, when we get a hold of that truth, will cause us to fall on our knees. Maybe even lie prostrate before him 
in praise and worship of our God. Because you know what it does? It causes us to say, why, oh why, God, would you choose me? And the answer is we don't know. There is no, it's not that there's some good in us. That's what I said before. It's nothing to do with that. But it does cause us to say, God, you have been so gracious. I know to some degree how deceitful and wicked my own heart is. And yet you have chosen to rescue me. All glory be to God. And that's what the Apostle Paul here is doing in a doxology. He says in chapter three, for this reason, I fall on my knees. I bow before the father. This is more than I can bear. In, uh, later in Romans, he says, oh, oh the wonders. The majesty, the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. It's beyond my comprehension, he says, that God would do this. He chose you not because you are worthy, but for his own glory. I read a poem that I thought would be helpful for us, and I think it's, it's, it's well written. It's called Foreknown and Destined in the Sun. Let me read this to you, and we're just about ready to finish. About a trillion centuries before the world was made and seas, of deep and empty space were not, yet there to make an endless spot. For nothingness, nor Gabriel, nor Lucifer, nor flames of hell, nor beasts and elders round the throne, but only God, the Lord alone. No element of any kind, nor measurement, but only mind, Ages before the Lord employed his sovereign power to make a void. Beside the vastness of his will, when there was only God to fill. The mind of God with joy and he was life and absolutely free. The father fixed his gaze on me. Foreknew my soul that I should be. At first ashamed before his face and then a vessel for his grace. And in the Holy Trinity engaged a glad conspiracy of love that all the energy of God should be employed to see. That I, when all his work is done, would bear the image of his son. Wow. Wow. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. The Bible tells us, That the Father's purpose was that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In choosing you and I, if you are saved, He chose us to be like Him. To be Christ-like. To be sanctified. To be conformed to the image of his son. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't you for a moment think that you are here for your own purposes. We're not. We are not here to satisfy our own selfish wishes in this life. We're not here to make a great deal of money and wealth. Not that money is evil, but the, the, the following and the, and the pursuing of it is. That's not the point. We're not here for that. We are here because of this very reason that we would be proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. Jude verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... 
and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. We're called to be holy and blameless. Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 5, or the end of 4 and verse 5 says this, In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. I want to make a couple of comments on this and the next verse before we close. In love, He predestined us. Very important phrase here, this word predestination, misused so often. Let me just tell you exactly what the Greek means as opposed to what people interpret it to be. Predestination literally just means, it's two words, appointing beforehand. That's what it means, to appoint something beforehand. God the Father lovingly appointed our adoption into his family by means of his Son, You know, it's, it's said that the Puritans would come across words, I've shared this before, uh, key words in the Scriptures that they could barely speak without being overwhelmed by sadness, grief. Uh, their eyes would be welling with tears when they came to words such as redemption because of what it meant. One such word that we don't appreciate as much as we ought is the word adoption. Adoption. This is a remarkable word. This is what it means. It carries the idea of setting or placing one in the position of son. You say, what's so good about that? It's a relationship that God established whereby he appointed one who was his enemy to be born again and gain entrance into the family of God. And not just simply entrance into the family of God, but conferred all of the rights and the power and the the sonship and the heir and the inheritance that is involved with someone being adopted into a family. And this is not, we were not born naturally into the family of God. We were born enemies of God, children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. And yet God in his grace said, I choose to adopt you as my own. That should blow us away. The God who needs nobody, the God who doesn't need you, chose to adopt you and confer all of the rights and responsibilities of his household upon you. Galatians 4, 4 4-7 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans 8, 14 to 15 says, For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive your spirit of slavery. Uh, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This verse teaches us that our adoption and entrance into the family of God is only possible through the Son. This was God's plan and purpose. Uh, Friends, for a moment, to pause from what's on the notes here, I just want to say 
the only, the only way that any one of us can be right with God is by means of His Son. We need to understand that because there may be those here this morning who this is foreign. This idea makes no sense. I don't understand. How can my sins be forgiven? How is it possible that I can be right with God? I've transgressed His law. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Uh, we, we know that at the end of life, there is the judgment for those who know not the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the only answer, the only way is the one who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 also tells us that the point of Jesus' coming was to bring us to God through the Son. The only way that you can experience life and life more abundantly is in the Lord Jesus Christ. In conclusion, I want to read verse 6 and then uh, we will finish. Verse 6, the Bible says, To the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the beloved. Remember, we're talking about the Father still. In our afternoon service, we're going to cover the Son and the Holy Spirit. But right now, we're dealing with the final aspect of the Father. And he says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You know, the supreme goal in salvation was not to bring you to God. The supreme goal in salvation was not about your soul. The supreme goal in salvation was to promote the glory and the grace of God. We make this about us, but it's not really about us. We we are those who benefit greatly from this matter of justification, but it's not about us. It's always about the glory and the grace of God. It's not the recipients. It's always about the giver, God. The Geneva Bible the previous Bible version to uh, the King James, which was translated in 1611, the Geneva Bible has some notes in it. And the notes on this particular passage say this, the uttermost and chiefest final cause is the glory of God the Father who saves us freely in His Son. Furthermore, it says that as His bountiful goodness deserves all praise, so also it should be set forth and proclaimed. To be blessed in the beloved, text says in verse 6, or in the King James it says, He hath made us accepted in the beloved. You know what that means? That means that God the Father has caused a vile, unworthy, wretched sinner to have fellowship with His beloved Son. The word beloved there, blessed in the beloved, is speaking of the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the beloved is. That's the beloved Son. Matthew 3.17, you remember that? Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Colossians 1.13, Jesus delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Even if we were to not continue with the next part in our afternoon service, how much is there regarding the Father? Wow. The question for us as we close this morning is what will you do with that? What will you do with that? There are only really two responses that ought to be a reality. One response is for us to realize that we are still in our sin, dead in trespasses, and the Father has made provision for salvation 
And so we fall on our face before the Lord and say, Lord, save me. That is an acceptable response. There's one other response for the believer. And it's similar to that of this one over here. It is that we have been reminded about the goodness of God, the kindness of God, and the same thing takes place. We fall on our face and we say, blessed be our God. Oh, what He has done for us. Oh, the wisdom and the grace and the power and the glory of this, our God. What an incredible God. Heavenly Father, uh, we have uh, spent really a very short portion of time looking at this passage. There is so much more that could be uncovered about your character, about your blessings. And Lord, I pray that we have done justice this morning by way of promoting the truth as found in your word. This is your eulogy, your anthem of praise. This is our heart's desire that we would sing this refrain with the apostle. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for all the blessings and benefits that he has poured out upon us. Thank you for initiating salvation in eternity past. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you that we have the privilege of coming into your presence, entering into the very throne room of heaven because of your grace. Thank you for the faith that you embedded into our heart that we might trust you. Thank you for the sanctifying work that you are doing causing us to be holy and blameless before you. Thank you for our adoption. That we would be called the children of God. And Lord, I pray that there might be those in our midst today who would, as John says, receive him and be, have entrance into the family of God. Receive adoption. Oh Lord, help us, we pray, to truly offer our thanks and praise before you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.